Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Andy Murray, James Harkin, and our friend Helen Arney of Festival of the Spoken Nerd. And once again, we've gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Helen. My fact is, tomorrow will be the longest day of your life. What do you know about my life that means the tour is going to be so terrible? It's because I won't be with you, Andy. That's, that's why it's going to be so long. No, um, the days on Earth are getting longer all the time. On average, right? This is an on average thing. So potentially tomorrow could be your longest ever day. But then the day after that could be even longer. Oh, and wow. We're talking like tiny, tiny amounts. But the Earth uh-huh. is gradually being So it's not down. like 20 minutes. Yeah, you don't, you don't suddenly wake up tomorrow and you're like, wow, got an extra spare 20 minutes. It's like you've got a microsecond. You've got okay. a microsecond spare. Oh, so, okay. What, what will I do with this? <laughs> Take the dog for a walk. <laughs> thinking about what you will do with yeah, it, you true. have wasted a yeah. microsecond. Like, in context, in the next 800 years, if we didn't adjust our clocks uh, to account for this, we would be an hour out. So midday wouldn't be... When the sun is at its highest point, it would be 1 p.m. So in 800 years' time, we'll be an hour out mm. unless we adjust uh, our clocks and we, we add these things called uh, leap seconds, all kinds of stuff. Do you know that the word noon used to mean 3 p.m.? So you would go 12 p.m., 1, 2, noon, 4. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> really? noon was the ninth hour of the day. And you can work back however many was, hours that was. It was 6 a.m., wasn't yeah, it? So the first hour of the day. for in uh, Was it Roman times? Uh, it, actually, in medieval times. And I think it was for um, like people who were praying. They would have to pray on the ninth hour. And so they would do their noontime prayers. And it would be at 3. So in the year 5,000, approximately, oh, yeah. midday will be We'll be back there again. We'll be back at <laughs> noon. This is perfect. <laughs> what were you saying about leap seconds? Well... This is the weird bit about all of this slowing down because the, the Earth is slowing down. There's nothing you can do about it. It's things like um, tidal forces kind of slowing down the okay. Earth by moving in and out, changing the angular momentum if you want to get physicsy about it. But things like earthquakes, they can speed up the movement of the Earth. Oh, so this really? is a really? on average thing. So over the last few decades we've noticed that the earth has slowed down but sometimes it's speeding up and sometimes it's slowing down so on average it's slowing down but they can't predict it exactly so you can right. never say right next year we need to add a leap second and we'll get back to normal wow. because some years you're going a bit slower some years you're going a bit faster so these organizations uh decide they're kind of like the real time lords. They decide when <laughs> we're going to add a leap second. There's a guy at the National Physical Laboratory, which yep. is down in South London, and um, he's kind of in charge a little bit of this kind of measurement of the time. He's known as the time lord, like you were saying. They call him the time lord. His real name is Peter Wibbley. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really interesting because Doctor Who calls his um, sonic screwdriver the Wibbly Wobbly. So he's Does got he? a... Yeah, yeah. It's the Wibbly Wobbly Timey Wimey. Anyway, Peter Wibbley, or we're going to call him the time yeah, lord. Oh, the time lord. The time uh, he lord. said there are consequences with tinkering with time. Are the consequences Daleks? <laughs> <laughs> Robo- Robo-men? No, Andy. Robo-men? I don't watch it. <laughs> Cybermen? Yeah, sure. But so it is a trade-off, though, because computer wow. time is 
clocking along in its own happy way, being exactly 60 seconds, exactly mm. 60 minutes, exactly 24 hours. But the Earth is doing something a little bit different. Yeah, the Earth yeah. is doing 24 doing its hours, thing. one second every couple of years. And the thing is, if we do change it, then we need to tell the computers as well. Yeah, right? and that's where it goes horribly wrong. Because they can only tell you six months in advance they're going to add a leap second Mm. all of the stock exchanges are now computerized and one second adding one second to one computer and not adding it to another means that all of the financial transactions happening in microseconds can be exploited suddenly the stock exchanges can go is there a thing andy about the number or the average time that people hold on to a share is like 0.01 seconds or something something crazy because they all happen so quickly and so microtransactions happening all the time like you or i might own 10 shares in tesco's or whatever i certainly have (laughs) (laughs) i was very worried when the quarterly figures came out <laughs> um, but companies will have, you know, a hundred or a thousand shares in Tesco's. For a microsecond. I, don't, I don't think I, there are a thousand shares in Tesco, James. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I own more than a tenth of Tesco. <laughs> <laughs> There is actually a big international argument about whether we keep the leap second, though, because uh, the US and France want to abolish leap seconds because they're incredibly annoying. Mm. Um, but Britain, Russia and China say that the technical challenges should be manageable, right? Yeah. We should be able to handle this. But this uh, last leap second, quite a few GPS receivers knocked out. Apparently, in the 2012 one, Reddit was down for 40 minutes, which was incredibly Whoa. upsetting. Uh, 2015, Twitter, Pinterest and Instagram and Amazon were down for about an hour or something. Did I not read that they um, had to ground all Qantas's flights for about an hour or something? Yeah, it was 2012. Their booking system went Whoa. AWOL because the systems couldn't cope with this added second in the middle of the night. Um, there's a thing I don't know too much about this but you guys might Anna was telling me this that the because (laughs) (laughs) someone I used to know Um, so basically uh, obviously every planet has a different uh, amount of day uh, to Earth, <laughs> yeah. well, then all twenty-four hours. Yeah. So all the NASA scientists who are working on the rovers on Mars have to adjust their clocks to be doing a work schedule on Mars yeah. time. Mm. So they work on a Mars day. That's cool. Yeah, it's like twenty. Is it twenty-six hours or something? It's not that different. Yeah, it's yeah, not it's that similar, different. Yeah. Yeah. But it starts to really mess you up. I, I found a really cool uh, measurement. So I was looking into different measurements of time. Um, and found a few surprising ones that I didn't know were real things. Like, for example, I would always hear an American say, I'll be there in a jiffy. I didn't know jiffy was an actual unit of time. What? Yeah, yeah jiffy's an actual unit of time. It's a 0.1 seconds. Really? Yeah. Uh, another unit. Uh, do, you, do you guys know how long a moment is? So I got this from a guy called uh, Haggard Hawks, at Haggard Hawks. He's on Twitter. Um, right. Uh, in medieval Europe, uh, 90 seconds is what a moment was defined as. Okay. Be there in a moment. Cool, I'll see you in 90 seconds. That's, <laughs> that's is that right? That, uh, that's according to this guy. He runs a really amazing blog about um, words that are no longer used. It's a, it's a really nice kind of uh, Twitter account. I read account. once that a moment now is like three seconds or something. And the, 
that how long you have to be hugging someone for it to be uncomfortable? Yeah, it is. It's what? it was a similar study. It was some kind of study about hugging, and it was like how long the average hug is until it gets a bit awkward. And they said it was a a moment, which is three seconds. And then they said a lot of other things in your body also last for three seconds. Oh, I can't remember what yeah, it was. It was yeah. So I don't think it's universal because I think if James and I hugged, it would be awkward after about zero point two <laughs> seconds oh, wow. in a jiffy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time for fact number two, and that is James. Okay, my fact this week is that in 1457, men with moustaches were banned from Dublin. This is such a cool <laughs> fact. <laughs> what? Why? They didn't like Irish people. Yes, oh. it was Irish people. Weirdly, it? with it being Dublin. <laughs> but because Dublin was owned by uh, the English at the time, just the area right. around Dublin... Uh, the rest of Ireland was run by the Irish. Uh, but the area around Dublin was run by the English. It was called the Pale, which is where we get the phrase beyond the Pale for something that's crazy, yeah. something that was outside of this Pale area. And what they didn't want was Irish people in the town. But if an Irishman did kind of get in there, how would you know it was him? Well, they all had these moustaches. So if there was an English person in the Pale who had a moustache, you didn't want him there because everyone would think he was Irish. Right. And that was a problem. The um, ordinance said men with bardies above the mouth were not allowed, and bardies meant beards. So any beard above the mouth. So you have a beard above the mouth, Dan. No, I don't. But he's also got a beard below the mouth. He's he got has. a beard. Oh, I've got a bit of growth. I wouldn't say it's a fully uh, formed. That counts as a bardie to me. Really? I'm afraid so. Oh. Well, wow. well, they had a, they had they even had a rule about this. It was so that is this same rule it was so that the said let be at least shaven within two weeks. So if you haven't shaved for two weeks, that's what counts. Because okay. amazingly, at the time, they did not have a word for moustache. So they had to say, if you have any beard above the mouth or hair on your upper lip, they had no uh, way of, more concise way of saying moustache. Oh One thing I love about this is this is, I'm quite obsessed with facial hair and beards in the sense that I'm really fascinated by it because I can't have it myself. And mm. I, I'm also fascinated by it and I don't really want it near me. It's like nuclear power stations. <laughs> I know that they're really great and lots of people like them, but I just don't want one pressed up against my face. Uh, like so, a nuclear power station. Yeah, exactly. But like, I, I, I'm absolutely obsessed with beards and uh, I've got some adverts that I dug up about quack beard growing oh, uh, solutions yeah. that were sold uh, by Victorian quacks in order to for people to grow a beard because beards were um, supposed to be for health so you, you they would filter out the bad air and they would carry oh. it, it was when it was when people still thought that diseases were carried by bad smells instead of mm. by contact so you, you would stop the bad smells getting into your mouth blah 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 um, so people would get a beard on prescription and if they weren't uh, able to <laughs> grow a beard they would get like a beard generating liquid wow. that they could smother over themselves that's so funny um, that's amazing so yeah beards were like for health that's very Healthy cool beards. but then they went really out of fashion at the end of the victorian times yeah yeah, yeah. and there was a, a study in 1909 about how mustaches harbor germs and this was the new york times this was a french study they were quoting it said a parisienne as in a female parisian allowed herself to be kissed by a clean-shaven man and then by a bearded man mm. and the clean-shaven man had left a small quantity of harmless particles his rival's kiss had colonized the lady's lips with the bacilli of tuberculosis diphtheria <laughs> pneumonia <laughs> and numerous other unpleasant microbes where did they get this bearded man they just dredged him up from the seine <laughs> This is brilliant because uh, in the <laughs> Journal of Hospital Infection, 
uh, they they went and swabbed some men with beards and some men without beards, yeah. and the men without beards had MRSA on their faces, and the people with beards did not have MRSA. Yeah, but they have tuberculosis, <laughs> cholera. <laughs> Arguably, it's because the other, but all the other bacteria, they had tons of bacteria, but it was producing toxins that was then killing off the nastier. Bugs. It was good bacteria. Yeah, so it's like penicillin. Penicillin Whoa. kills off other bacteria because it produces toxins. Um, I found a survey result from 2010 okay. of what people in Britain recognise as the most famous moustaches in the world. Right. I think there's one. Interestingly, okay. Hitler is not on the list. You're kidding. <laughs> Hitler's not on the no. list. Fix. Yeah. Total <laughs> fix. The... Total fix. Yeah. So in at number one with 24%. Chaplin. No. Chaplin is in at five. Give, yeah. us, a, give us a clue. Clue. Artist. Picasso. Dali. 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 Oh. Dali. <laughs> the Picasso moustache. Famed. <laughs> you panicked. <laughs> I did. I could see Andy was going for it. I was like, I need to get in here fast. And then I just... Oh, my God. And just quickly at number two, in at 18%. Picasso? Nope. <laughs> clue. We need a clue. A uh, clue. Uh, sportsman. No. Big Daddy in the haystacks with the white moustache. Whatever. The one with the, the wrestler with the white... Yes. You got Hulk it. Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan. Yes. Hulk Hogan. Hitler's moustache is way more famous than Hulk Hogan's moustache. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, someone else missed out on the list of most famous moustaches, which is the South Korean striker Kang Soo-il, uh-huh. oh, who yeah. very recently was suspended for 15 matches uh, because he was found to have steroids in his system, which he blamed on a moustache-growing cream that he had <gasps> been applying to his face. Hmm. Yeah. Did you yeah. say... Korean football player. For yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, because I've got the same thing as a Japanese football player. Well, a few years later, no. a Japanese <gasps> rugby player missed yeah. the World Cup. Yeah, exactly for the same reason. He said Steroids, he was trying to grow yeah. a mustache, and uh, and it he was just, using yeah. this kind of thing that had. Yeah, it seems that I've never heard of uh, modern day mustache cream. Yet in Korea and Japan, apparently this is a thing. Clearly, if they're using it as an excuse, hmm. then it yeah. has at least some traction there. Yeah, there are a group of people in Japan called the Ainus. <laughs> <laughs> Grow up, did, did you... Grow up, kid. What's wrong with you? Grow up. <laughs> and um, they're heavily mustached. Often. <laughs> so the hairy Ainus. Uh... <laughs> Honestly, um, so the Ainus, um, they they have these really long mustaches, and they are often said to carry a mustache stick around to lift the moustache when they're eating so they don't get Guinness or whatever inside oh, their moustaches. That's very cool. Now, it was first described by a guy called Edward S. Morse when he uh, went around Japan in the 19th century, but it turns out that it isn't a moustache stick. It's a prayer stick, but they do use it to lift their moustaches, so it kind of is a moustache oh, stick okay. as well. What's a prayer stick? Uh, it's a stick you use for... Praying. <laughs> is it like an antenna to God? I don't know. I imagined it would be like, you know, um, like prayer bowls in Buddhist countries where yeah. you kind of, you would take the bowl and you would make it make a ringing noise and it would help you meditate or something. I imagined it was like that, but I really don't know. Mm. They did used to have, I think it was back in the Victorian times, a set of cut, like, mugs and, and so on where yeah. they had mustache catchers. So you'd place your <sighs> mustache into it as yeah. part of the porcelain. And there would be a... I think the Anus had those as well. (laughs) I think so, moustache cups. So maybe that's where... Those are big. Yeah, we had some of those on QI TV show. Oh, really? And some of the spoons as well, which have a little hole in... So it's like a normal spoon, except it's got a cap over it with a hole cut out of it. So you can pour soup onto one half of the spoon and then strain it through the hole. 
So you get none of Neil Moustache. Wow. And that Very sounds lovely. incredibly practical just from a kind of sippy cup kind of perspective. Yeah. That, that to have that would mean you I know. I'd <laughs> you like one myself. Yeah, I'd love yeah. one. Um, I've got another stick beard okay, fact. Okay, Oh, yeah. Uh, facial hair stick fact, um, <laughs> which is uh, we mentioned the, the popularity of beards in Victorian times. Mm. In the early Victorian times, they were incredibly unpopular. And then they kind of reached peak beard in uh, kind of the 1890s. <laughs> but to give you an example... Uh, in the, in the 1840s, only one member of parliament had a beard. And it wow. was George Frederick Muntz. And uh, this was really extraordinary, not just because it looked like a toilet brush attached to the bottom <laughs> of his face. But um, at the time, beards were the mark of a tramp, revolutionary or charlatan. So he used ah. to carry a stick with him. And I've got this. He was, although he was a large man, he would carry a stiff cane with him at all times to answer any insults he encountered on the streets from people who accused him of being either a crank or an artist. Evil. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I thought I'd look at some other things that happened in 1457. Oh, cool. Um, nice. Just a few things. Uh, Pope Paul II died in a melon-induced apoplexy. <laughs> We've oh. all been there. Incredible. <laughs> so this yeah. is a, uh, Anna, who I should introduce you guys to one day. Um, <laughs> she she didn't she do a big thing where yeah. she found melon overdose was a massive thing yeah. back around this time. She loves it. Yeah, she found like 10 people, kings and popes, and yeah, all died from melon overdose. Yeah. But, so. but how? Is it like, it goes... I think it was surely something else. Obviously it was something else. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, some other things. Um, Vlad the Impaler made his first raid into Transylvania in that year. Uh, golf was banned by James II of Scotland. Wow. And in 1457, a sow, a pig, was convicted of murder and sentenced to be hanged by the hind feet from a gallows. Um, her six piglets were found to be accomplices, um, <laughs> but as no evidence was offered against them, on account of their tender age, they were acquitted. Wait, but being hanged <laughs> by your hind feet, wouldn't that be just like a bungee jump? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that Diplodocuses could break the sound barrier. The dinosaur. <laughs> it was so fast. <laughs> yeah. This, like, was this like a, a the days were shorter, sound travelled a lot slower? <laughs> I know. So, so the actual the actual answer is that they had a little whipping system at the end of their tail, and they would whip it so fast that it would break the sound barrier little sonic boom created um and we know this apparently according to scientists because they've been doing these computer simulations where they've been recreating the dinosaurs and one of the consequences of putting this thing together the simulation is that when the dinosaurs tailed this movement it moved at such a speed that it breaks the sound barrier so obviously it's hypothetical we don't have diplodocuses to check it out <laughs> on but supposedly they broke the sound barrier I just I find something crazy that something that large because I think I I think unless I've made it up there are a few sort of smaller animals that can break the sound barrier but outside yeah. of that I've never heard of something natural a living thing breaking the sound barrier yeah. isn't the there's a is the, is the shrimp does that yeah mantis shrimp yes mantis that's shrimp, what I'm but thinking. it doesn't it itself doesn't move uh, faster than the sound barrier it, cre- it clicks with its claws and it creates a bubble which breaks the sound barrier ah. is that correct yeah that sounds about right okay so yeah. then that shouldn't count so i don't yeah as, yeah in terms of the animal moving itself yeah yeah um it's fantastic and it's a diplodocus i mean that's well i think it's a diplodocus isn't it well ah 
<laughs> I say Diplodocus. Do you? But I say Diplodocus. A lot of uh, people say Diplodocus, mm. and that's the American pronunciation. Mm. Two I've, scientists around here say Yeah, but da- Dan's seen Jurassic Park a lot. Yeah. I would trust <laughs> okay. exactly his judgment. Well, because the word Diplodocus was invented by an American, uh, and he pronounced it Diplodocus, I think we were supposed to pronounce it Dipo- Diplodocus. But actually, I do concede that Diplodocus is a nicer word. Well, there's a BBC news correspondent called Susan <laughs> Ray, and she went round surveying what people thought it was oh, yeah. amongst Ooh. academics to get uh, mm. the best understanding of it. And what she actually came out with, I think there was a definitive answer, but I got more interested in this sideline thing she found out, which yeah. is that there's actually four pronunciations of it. So it's not just the two that we know. Okay. Um, there's so- Diplodocus. Yeah, that's the one that's how I say it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's speed as well. <laughs> is there a diplodocus? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Diplodocus. Yeah. So that one as well. That's the Sorry, fourth. Yeah, I meant diplodocus. Yeah. <laughs> but that would imply yeah, there's a it. there's a single animal called a plodocus, which is twice as big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's four pronunciations apparently. Right. What was the fourth one? Uh, I think the one I just said. Diplodocus. <laughs> So this was by a BBC journalist. Yeah. Due to the unique way that BBC is funded, we now know that we now know there are four. But Dan hasn't told us which is the right one. Well, as I said, I got so interested in the four pronunciations, (laughs) I didn't look into the into the one that actually won. And it was named after Andrew Carnegie. One of the first dinosaur specimens was named after Andrew (laughs) Diplodocus (laughs) Carnegie. Um, yeah, no, the one of the most wealthy men ever. Yeah. Can you explain how it was named after him, though? Uh, well, it was called uh, Diplodocus Carnegie, the oh, first specimen, yeah, ah. the scientific name it was given. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, he invested a lot of money. I think he gave Dippy the Diplodocus to the Natural History Museum, the plaster cast. Okay. It was him who presented it. Yeah, yeah. And he, he was very instrumental in spreading the amazing news about this dinosaur around the world. He was fascinated by them. Yeah. That's it. Spe- just speaking of Dippy, um, so Dippy obviously originally had uh, a different tail. I-, I think it was um, on the ground, and then they realized that uh, Diplodocuses probably had them raised up, so they had to redo it. Um, so they had to do remolding of it. Yeah. So the person who did the molding of it was the same guy who did Jabba the Hutt for Return of the Jedi. <laughs> really? really? Yeah. His name is John Coppinger. That's a great That's, really, That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> I know this because uh, someone we work with, Steve, uh, helped uh, to work on it. So this guy yeah. not only did Dippy, but he did Jabba the Hutt, and he did a lot of the aliens in uh, Fifth Element and and cool. Harry Potter and so on. I love the aliens in Harry Potter. They were <laughs> <Yeah>. so good. <laughs> it was a curveball, but it was, it was it was the right moment. <laughs> um, I've got a dinosaur naming story, um, which is that it was a couple of years ago, a new species, completely new species of pterosaur has been named after a nine-year-old girl who found the fossilized bones on a beach in the Isle of Wight. Um, And the species is called uh, Vectidraco, which means pterosaur, means dragon from the Isle of Wight. Um, And the second word is Daisy Morrissey, because her name is Daisy Morris. And so she's a nine-year-old girl who has a dinosaur named after her because she found the bones, she collected them up, she handed them in. That's very Um, cool. Best bit about this, when she actually found them, she was only four years old. Wow. Uh, And she started fossil hunting at the age of three. I've been looking for fossils in the Isle of Wight as well, and I've never found any pterosaurs. Yeah, because bloody Daisy Morris has got there first. (laughs) (laughs) She's had years head start. She's been going for like 10 years. Yeah, but I'm a lot older than 
than her. My eyesight might not be as good as it used to be. That's the thing, she's closer to the ground. (laughs) You can't move as fast on the uncertain terrain, James. Yep. I was reading about the sound barrier and breaking the sound barrier. Yeah. The first man to break the sound barrier is still alive, which I did not know. Chuck, Chuck Yeager. Yeager. Yeah. Great name. That's an uh, amazing name. And he was 24 when he became the first man to break the, the sound barrier. It's really... That's, and that's and he's young. what, 89 now? He's, he's 92. 92? Yeah. Um, and because he, he used to be a fighter pilot, he fought, uh, uh, flew in the mm. Second World War. And he had amazing adventures, as you would expect. Because he was a fighter pilot. Yeah. And I was just reading, this is all very publicly, this is on the Wikipedia about him. He, on the 12th of October 1944, he downed five enemy aircraft in a single mission, which is good, I believe. Mm. Um, <laughs> like you saying, you would expect it with him being a fighter pilot. You would be the worst audience for his stories, wouldn't you? He's like, <laughs> I was in the war and I shot down all these enemies. And you're like, well, I would expect that you're a fighter pilot. <laughs> <laughs> hang on, hang on. I want to tell you what happened on the 12th of October 1944. So this is the exact sentence. Two of these kills, out of five in a day, two of these kills were scored without firing a single shot. When he flew into firing position against a Messerschmitt 109, the pilot of the aircraft panicked, breaking to starboard and colliding with his wingman. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> How cool is that? Wow. You yeah. just have to turn and face. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They both parachuted out. Like... Oh, so they survived. He's... um. <laughs> So 92, I uh, I follow him on Facebook. He's a very active Facebook user, yeah. Yeah, Chuck Yeager loves Facebook. That's amazing. Breaking oh. the social media barrier. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there supposedly a story about, was it Kittinger or someone who maybe broke the sound barrier before him uh, doing a free fall from extremely, extremely high? Oh. Uh, and the idea being that he um, went so fast and with the air being so thin up there, the sound barrier is a bit, a bit less uh, that maybe he did break the sound barrier. Wow. wow. There are loads of earlier claims, or mm. people, who, and they sort of didn't have very accurate instruments and things like that. Um, also, the last time that Chuck Yeager uh, broke the sound barrier was on the 50th anniversary of the first time. Mm. He flew a plane at the age of 74 past Mach 1. There's a picture of him sitting in it, uh, you know, on his Facebook page. You can see that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. I, I'm going to go and poke him after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Um, we were talking on last week's podcast about the Concorde, and so that obviously breaks the sound barrier. And you pointed out, Andy, that they're not allowed to do it over cities. And I had no idea because the, the boom is so great that it would actually just be incredibly noisy. But actually, it goes beyond noise. There was an accidental sonic boom, a sound barrier breaking that happened um, and what, how do you pronounce this place? I know it's... Aberystwyth. Aberystwyth. There are actually four ways of pronouncing it. <laughs> uh, it was Aberystwyth. <laughs> so um, a jet was flying over and it broke the sound barrier and it was so loud that everyone thought that a bomb had gone off. Windows in shops shattered. Wow. Like just blew out completely. People were terrified and they genuinely thought something had exploded. Mm. That's incredible. That's that, amazing. Yeah. Night shift worker Greg Babalicki said, I was just falling asleep and the sonic boom happened. Keep it down, please. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that what happened with the meteorite in Chelyabinsk as well? It broke the sound barrier and it caused a massive kind of smashing of windows and stuff. Wow. So when the dinosaurs were wiped out, allegedly, by this giant Mm. meteor, were they all just like, wow, those diplodocus (laughs) (laughs) whipping up their tails and stop? Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact is that more and more scientists are describing their findings as astounding. (laughs) So this is a study of scientific papers from the last 40-odd years, and it's by 
uh, the researchers at the University Medical Center of Utrecht. Utrecht in the Netherlands? There are actually four different ways of pronouncing <laughs> that. <laughs> Um, and so they found that uh, in scientific papers that are published, more and more uh, researchers and scientists are putting positive words uh, like novel or amazing or spectacular into descriptions of their works. And they're also using other descriptive words more, a bit more. So amazing, assuring, astonishing, bright, creative, encouraging, enormous, excellent, groundbreaking, innovative, phenomenal, uh, reassuring, <laughs> like, and robust and spectacular and unique and unprecedented. And novel, uh, the, the word novel now appears in uh, 7% of papers in PubMed, which is this huge online database of papers. And the researchers have uh, jokingly said that at this rate, Every paper will be described as that by the year 2123. Yeah. <laughs> right. There was a guy who wrote a book about weird newspaper articles from like the, the 19th century, and he, I think, searched for a singular coincidence oh. or a singular example of something, um, which obviously should mean it only ever happened once, but they used it all the time in Victorian oh. times. That's great. Yeah. Who was saying, was it some, one of you who was saying about Sherlock Holmes uh, stories the other day? I was talking to someone about this, and they pointed out that every single Sherlock Holmes story starts with uh, Watson saying, in all the cases we ever dealt with, this was the most singular, this was the most (laughs) extraordinary. (laughs) So there are a couple of flaws in the study, because it's just picked, it's based on certain words, so it doesn't take into account all language. But they do think that it genuinely highlights uh, an actual problem with Mm. scientific language. Uh, Is it a problem? Is it a problem that scientific papers are using the language of discovery for their discoveries yes i I, I am on your side actually like i read a headline that was scientists left and then this is the quote gobsmacked by astounding pluto (laughs) images So, yeah, you would be gobsmacked and astounded by Pluto images. Uh, w- yeah, but I don't think you would be if you had sent a camera to look at Pluto. Well, <laughs> As in, it's still... It's, you'd be gobsmacked it's... if you'd never sent a camera to Pluto no, and the images arrived. No, but, yeah. Where did that camera go? <laughs> this I is typical of you, Andy. Oh, no. Well, you would expect that. You work with Pluto. <laughs> so the word astounding comes from thunder, tonnery, and it means like to leave something thunderstruck. Where does the word gobsmacked come from? Uh, I think it's just been smacked in the gob. <laughs> <laughs> There's another cool thing about scientific language. So they, they, they've uh, analysing scientific language, looking at word frequencies and things. There was a scientist called Diederik Stapel who got the nickname the Lying Dutchman uh, <laughs> because... <laughs> uh, in 2011, he admitted that he'd made up a lot of data. He's a, a psychology oh, yeah. uh, researcher. And uh, researchers at Cornell University in New York looked at his papers and they knew which ones were fake and which ones the data was uh, fake and which it was real. And they worked out that he used more science-related terms to describe his methods when he was writing up fraudulent findings than when he was writing up real ones. So they can identify to 70% accuracy, which is a long way to go, but Mm. they can identify when he's lying. Which is interesting. Mm. So if that wow. could be rolled out to other forms of language, Ooh, that would be amazing. Forensic linguistics. Yeah, that is fascinating because there, there's certain like tricks. I don't I don't know them all. Like in interrogation, where you can study not the content of the responses, but the word count of responses. It's a certain police technique where you're not really listening to the answers, but you're listening to the number of repeated words oh, really? they're using. And oh. it's actually... And they say, I did it, 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 I did it. No, it's, it's because if you if you were at a scene and you were actually there, then you don't have to draw on your imagination as much, so you use a, a different 
That's uh, so clever. Yeah. Control the kind of repetition of language. Um, there was a scientific paper with no words in it that I found. Ah. Uh, it was by a guy, a clinical psychologist called Dennis Upper, um, which he wrote or didn't write in 1974, and it was called The Unsuccessful Self-Treatment of a Case of Writer's Block. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's delightful. That's, That's the scientific funny. equivalent of John Cage's Four Minutes 30. Yeah, years, yeah. exactly that. Nice. That's great. That's very you can good. instead of like in for four thirty. You talked about this the other day. You talked about four thirty three mm. and and how it's about the audience noise and the, the orchestra mm. noise or the pianist noise. Is that just reading that paper? You just as a scientist have the internal yeah. thoughts <laughs> of disappointment. Yeah, uh, you project onto it. You lack project of success. Your, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's really cool. I went on to um, Google News and looked for the word astounding. Um, to see what people are describing as astounding at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, it's astounding that 10 households in Western Supermare still watch black and white telly, according to one, the most recent headline I found. See, there we are. I'm not yeah. astounded. Are you not? Yeah. I'm, in, I'm intrigued. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought that word was going to be indifferent as it came yeah. out, but no, intrigue was much more interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, yeah. those must be a rarity now, and I'm sure the sets have a certain value to a collector yeah. or a connoisseur. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And you get pay a cheaper license fee, I understand? Yes, you do. Right. Yeah. Uh, the next astounding uh, news story I found was Officer hands out an astounding 19,000 parking tickets in a year. Now that is astounding. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'm surprised uh, that you wouldn't say, well, you would expect that. He's a parking one. <laughs> Uh, and then the third one that I found was It's Astounding. Seven black and white TV licenses are currently in force in Pontypridd. Wow. So hmm. it's, it's the word astounding outside science papers is mostly used to describe <laughs> TV licenses. <laughs> now that is astounding. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on Twitter. I'm on at Schreiberland. Andy. At Andrew Hunter M. James. At Eggshaped. And Helen. At Helen Arney. Yeah, and Helen's got a bunch of gigs coming up as well. First one is this coming Sunday, which is the 24th of January, and that is in London, and that's Festival of the Spoken Nerd. So you can go to that. And also, you're doing a new show, aren't you, on the last Tuesday of every month? We are. It's called An Evening of Unnecessary Detail, and it does exactly what it says on the tin. Uh, Even your own Andrew Hunter-Murray is doing our Casio Night special. It will be astounding. (laughs) (laughs) It will be. Okay, uh, if you want to listen to all our previous episodes, they're on our website, no such thing as a fish.com. You can also email podcast at qi.com. Anna, who used to be on the show, uh, <laughs> she will be back next week. Uh, she will answer those emails, and uh, we'll see you again next week for another episode. Goodbye.